Welcome to another episode of North American Deer Talk, where the fusion of facts and opinions become the education and entertainment for all. This is your host, Josh Newton, and we have another great show for you today. This is your host, Josh Newton. Thanks for joining me. It is July 22nd, 2020. Where's the summer gone? You know, you get wrapped up kind of doing your your day-to-days, and I've been I've been meaning to record a podcast, and uh, time just seems to get away from me. You know, you get out, you're doing chores, you're taking care of animals, and I have a the servant solutions business that I run and, and, uh, you know, we're getting and preparing for, uh, vaccine orders to go out the door. You know, some, some of you listening have, have already got yours or starting paperwork to, to get them done. And it's, uh, it's a busy time for sure. Um, one of the things that we do here at service solutions is, uh, we try to do as much as we can in the way of educational materials, uh, whether that be through this through this podcast, um, you know, social media posts, uh, videos, articles, things of that nature, any any way we can to to put out information, and um, one of the things that we do is we provide some premium content. Uh, for our Service Solutions members, so when you sign up for the Service Solutions membership. You get access to a, a private dashboard. There's some uh, herd management software in there where you keep track of your animals and treatment logs and load-in sample and necropsy reports and things of that nature. But there's also um, a, a kind of a short video series, and then there's a bunch of like the fawning protocols and uh, articles that you can't find on the regular Servid Solutions site. So one of those that we just did was uh, an article called Parasites and the Importance of a Deworming Program. So what I'm going to do today is I'm actually going to go, and this is a, a pretty in-depth topic here, but I'm just going to go through and I'm going I'm to read it um, and then just make some comments uh, on a few of the, the items that I think are worth noting. But the the purpose of this is to show you kind of the in-depth nature that we go through to to provide really you know qu- quality content um, for the members. So we'll get started. Uh, parasites exist in the natural settings of all things. In the cervid world, these can originate in a host of different sources, both internal and external. The fact that parasites exist requires an approach to their management in a very structured way. As with all things, let's look at this topic with an open mind and agree. Prevention is the best medicine. As long as animals are grazing in pastures and eating off the ground or in shared feed bunks, there is a need to control parasites. 
A successful deworming program is essential to the health of your herd. When, re when referring to a deworming program, that does not automatically assume that your animals are already infested with worms. It is a protocol of prevention to keep them from getting the infestation. Every pasture is different and can contain different parasites as well as different levels of infestation. As an example, a dry pasture may tend to have fewer issues with parasites compared to that of a wet pasture where water, urine, and feces are found. Geographically diverse areas will also have a prevalence of different parasites and disease. Now when we look at young animals, they're susceptible to severe illness due to parasites as they do not have the immune system and cannot tolerate parasites as well as an adult. And we see this as well with uh, bacteria and infections in, in younger animals. Although some say adults are able to carry a few parasites and not be affected, this is not optimum, and the goal should be to keep your animals parasite-free. Parasite will also also adversely affect milk production, fertility, and growth. It should be noted that prolonged periods of parasitic infection also provide a weakened immune system, which ultimately create opportunity for bacterial or viral infections to take hold. I've seen some, and I'm, I'm, I'm off script here, so I've seen some, uh, some interesting conversations on some of the forums and, and, and uh, deer pages that have talked about how parasites are, are able to, you know, reduce the, the quality of an animal down to the point where um, bacteria is able to thrive. You know, most of our animals have, in, in some cases, have bacteria in them, but their, their body maintains it at a level in which it, it, can, it can thrive. It's when, usually when there's some sort of secondary event or um, change in the body, whether that be from a, a, you know, an internal source or an exterior source, uh, environmental or let's just say parasitic, um, that you know problems can arise and those balances get out of whack. So um, you know the when, when there's some I guess some higher level discussions on some of those forum groups. It's it's certainly to me it's worthwhile you know reading through some of the the discussion and I, I really appreciate it when some of the veterinarians uh, chime in on on things. Um, it's always interesting to to get a, a a professional um, perspective on on things. So back back to the script. There are a number of parasites that can affect ruminants, specifically cervids. Below is a list, although not necessarily comprehensive. Generally speaking, there are external parasites such as lice and ticks found on the body of deer, as well as parasites on the outside of the digestive tract and parasites located internally. In the digestive tract. So there's a couple important terms that I, I, I want to discuss before we get into uh, a few of these. Um, that's a definite or primary host. This is an organism in which a parasite reaches maturity in its final stages and reproduces sexually if possible. Intermediate or secondary host is a host used by a parasite in the course of its life cycle but does not reach sexual sexual maturity statistics. External parasites, lice, including biting lice, sucking lice, 
both causing irritation to the skin. Ticks, dependent on your geography, uh, the species can vary. And then mites, uh, normally more infestations occur in captive animals, probably due to their their proximities. Um, internal parasites, coccidia. Um, there's a pretty, and I'm off script again, sorry. Um, there's a pretty in-depth uh, review of coccidia that we put up. I believe that's on the, the general section of the uh, Service Solutions website. So if you have some questions about uh, coccidia or as I go over it, you know, something kind of sparks in your brain, there's there's a, a, a full in-depth coverage. Uh, it's also been featured in, uh, I believe, the Nadifa newsletter uh, their their quarterly magazine that they put out. So, and if you're if you're not an Nadifa member and you want to get that uh, quarterly newsletter, which is usually very worthwhile, uh, get signed up. Support Nadifa. It's a, a great organization. So, coccidia, coccidia are microscopic single cell protozoa. These are intercellular parasites and live and reproduce within the animal cell itself. Cervids are at risk of infection, and when infected, it is known as coccidiosis. Coccidia have a complex life cycle. If you want to see that life cycle, off script, sorry. Um, If you want to see that life life cycle, head over, check out that article. It's really, really nice. Uh, In clinical animals, symptoms include severe diarrhea or scours with streaks of blood followed by severe dehydration and death with fawns being the most susceptible. And we've talked about this on, on countless uh, shows, countless times. The number one killer of fawns is uh, dehydration. Now, the primary cause of that may be diarrhea, but the dehydration is what kills them, not necessarily the diarrhea itself. So keep that in mind. Back to the script. When infective, supportive care is needed and will most likely include hydration, probiotics, and working closely with your veterinarian for optimum results. Now, remember, we're, we're, we're still on the, the internal parasites here. Cryptosporidium. Uh, cryptosporidium, or, or crypto, uh, like coccidia, are non-host-specific protozoa. Their life cycle consists of uh, six major development phases. After injection, the oocyte, there is a release of infectious sprotozoids, asexual multiplication, gamete formation, fertilization, oocyte wall formation, and sprotozite formation. I really don't want to read that again, so hopefully everybody got that. These oocytes can sporulate uh, within host cells and are infective when passed in the feces. Sporulation uh, refers to the formation of spores from, from dormant vegetative cells, dormant or vegetative cells, during unfavorable environmental condition. This is an adaptive response. Spores are robust, dormant life forms designed to outlast adverse conditions and to provide a potential advantage in a competitive environment. Translation, they survive well in tough conditions. True, I like that. They survive well in tough conditions. Um, 
research in calves and in, in cow calves show that cryptosporidium are mostly found in the lower part of the small intestine and less common in the in the colon. Clinical signs of crypto, mild to moderate diarrhea that persists for several days regardless of treatment. Feces are yellow and pale, watery, contains music, mucus. Uh, persistent diarrhea may result in weight loss and emaciation. As with coccidia, supportive care is needed when animals are infective and excuse me, when animals are infected and will most likely include hydration probiotics working closely with your veterinarian for optimal care. Um, so some of the, and I'm, and I'm So some of the things that I've seen with um, crypto that I, that I was reading was they actually took, um, they took cryptosporidium and they put it in a, you know, like a one to 10 bleach mixture or something like that. Uh, for 30 minutes and they took it out and it was still alive so um, you know you get it in a fawn barn and and, and bleach um, is not the most effective against it so um, you know you want to you want to try to keep things as clean as possible and not get it but when you are able to usually it ends up being too late but when you are able to identify it um, really having solid methods of supportive care are super important. Uh, important, important. The the use of uh, lactated ringers, probiotic pace, and then you know tube feeding, or you know a lot of times these these animals don't they don't feel good. Uh, milk isn't ideal, but um, you know, just keeping them going and their, their bodies, they'll, they'll kind of work through it. Um, we had that, I want to say it was 2009. I think we had three or four cases. I have no idea where it came from. Um, but it, it was, uh, it was a bear to work through and, um, we ended up with a, a few kind of novel protocols, whether they were, you know, approved, uh, so to speak, or not, but, you know, they save they save animals. So if you're having some crypto spiridium problems, you can feel free to reach out. Back to the script. Liver fluke. I'm not even going to uh, try to say the scientific name for this, which happens to be the first two words of the uh, description here, but liver fluke are commonly found in ruminants. Um and the specific variety is commonly found in deer. They're also called giant liver fluke or large American liver fluke. The parasitic flatworm is found within the liver of deer and other animals. Adult liver flukes are flat, oval-shaped, and purple-gray in color. In North America, the primary hosts are white-tailed deer, but they don't always show signs of infection. Lungworm. Lungworm infection in cattle is called husk or hoose. Causes loss of performance, fatalities in young calves, and a drop in milk yield. Can cause uh, parasitic pneumonia, bronchiolitis in calves and adult cattle. Arterial worm. Arterial worms are nematodes that live in the carotid arteries of deer. The carotid arteries are in the neck area and provide blood flow to the brain, neck, and face. 
with a high infestation of arterial worms, the blood flow is restricted, and that can cause partial paralysis in the deer's jaw. Food can come become impacted with the inability to normally move the jaw muscles and cause a lumpy jaw appearance. This nematode is commonly passed in larva form by the horsefly. Our friend the horsefly. All right, I'm off script. Um, so we... We we hear um, we hear people say lumpy jaw all the time, and technically the the form that they're they're using is really not correct. So lumpy jaw, when referring to uh, fuso infection, fusobacterium, um, is really not correct. So a, probably a better term to use would be. Uh, trench mouth or some sort of abscess. Uh, I kind of like trench mouth. You know, you get that, you know, abscess forming, but really lumpy jaw or bottle jaw um, is when they're talking about arterial worms. So just fun, fun fact for you. Okay, back to the script. Abdominal worm. These are different from stomach worms as abdominal worms are found on the outside of the stomach. They live in the abdomen and thoracic cavity of the deer and generally cause clinical illness in them. Postmortem adult worms also may be found insisted on the surface of organs, larval tapeworm. Several different tapeworms are common among animals and deer, the most common seen. Oh, I, I, I should have uh, I should have practiced my pronunciations. Tanania hydegenia. That was my attempt at saying uh, something derived from Latin, I believe. Wherein deer act as the immediate host and portray no clinical signs. As with abdominal worms, tapeworms do not generally pose a health risk to the animal or the human but they, ha they may be noticed post-mortem in the tissue of the animals. Let's see. That one's not too relative. Okay, nasal bots. These, I think, are a, an overlooked, um, an overlooked pretty common parasite for deer. So... They're commonly referred to as nasal bots. These bots are actually the larva or maggot stage of certain flies. They're transported, oh, by the female, again, we got these, these fancy scientific terms, cephanemone, cephanemonia, and deposit larvae in the nostrils of the deer. They then migrate into the retropharyngeal pouches, that are located on the side of the throat and at the base of the tongue. They develop from small white larvae into large yellowish-brown parasite resembling a maggot. When they have completed their life cycle, they are expelled from the throat, deposited in the soil where they pupate and develop into flies. Normally, these are not noticeable, but you may see some snorting, which is a normal behavior for deer, or lowering of the head, nasal discharge, possible excessive sneezing. Occasionally heavy infestations may cause death by suffocation. So, 
off script. Fun, fun story, fun fact. Not really fun for me, but so I had a, um, I had a deer. I want to say this was August because I just remember like it being incredibly warm out. And um, this is a while ago, so I'll try to re- replay the story the best I can. Um, I had a, I had an animal that I want to say he got like. He nicked up a, a drop tine or something like that. Or maybe he was just looking a little rough one day. I, I, I don't exactly recall, but I do recall um, knocking him down and, um, you know, taking a look, getting a, a physical inspection on him and, and taking a look at him. And I waited till the evening when it was a lot cooler. And the um, the... You know, I, w- I woke him up, and he seemed, you know, he, he woke up, but he just, you know, I guess he wasn't quite right anyway. Long story short, um, he had died overnight, and when I came in, obviously, I had to, I had to get him out of the pen. So, I was, I took his head off, and the, um, I got, I forget exactly why, but the, uh, the one of the state vets was out, one of our, our regional folks, and they took some samples for me. And the guy was loaded with these nasal bots. I mean, I think I pulled oh twenty five of them out, thirty out, just talked all the way back in that nasal canal, and they were like monster sized maggots. It was frankly really disgusting. But an interesting learning experience, if you will. So um, I think it's I think it's worthwhile to keep an eye on um, some of the symptoms that that I just kind of laid out there. Um, if there's any excessive sneezing, hacking, coughing that is not bacterial related. Um, anyway, I. I, I nasal bots just kind of stick in my mind as a as something to to keep an eye out on um back on script large stomach worm also known as barbel pole worm with the scientific name hemachus contortus contortus yes the life cycle is uh dr- now i'm off script again just don't be emailing me about my uh, pronunciations of these uh, scientific names, unless you're a professional, and then I will I will um, hire you to come on. This is excluding vets. If you're just like a normal farmer like me, and you have a knack for um, proper pronunciation of of uh, scientific names of bacteria and parasites and such, you get a hold of me. You can do some voiceover work for me. Anyway, back back to the script here. Uh, large barber wolves, uh, barber wolves, barber pole worms. The life cycle is direct, and deer obtain these worms while eating vegetation. Most deer serve as a host to these parasites with no clinical signs of disease. At a high intensity, these barber pole worms may occur and cause death. Usually. It occurs in weak and anemic fawns, as well as malnourished animals that are infested with other parasites. 
the homochus, homonychus is a term to identify where or when there is a clinical infestation of large stomach worms. Mangenial worm. Mangenial worms are also known as brain worms and are nematode and are a nematode or roundworm parasite. With its primary host being deer, white-tailed deer are a natural host and are rarely affected by this worm, but pass it on to other species that are severely affected. Elk, caribou, and moose among them. Now, I also believe that um, mule deer can be added to that list. Um, I think there are a few guys that raise both whitetail and mule deer, and they're they're pretty conscious of that. Um, but certainly the the whitetail and, and elk guys. Now I may be off base on that that mule deer comment, but uh, maybe you can somebody can can chime in and, and ping me with a message and let me know if that's correct. But I I believe that's the the case. Um, this worm is found mostly in the eastern North America. Um, so I'm in I'm in Pennsylvania, and and obviously. Um, you know, it's something that we uh, we need to you know keep track of and look out for here, um, but it's less less so found in the West. Even though whitetail do not normally show clinical symptoms, um, if there is a large infestation in a deer, especially a fawn, it can show lameness, circling, or neurological symptoms. Strongyles. Strongyles are a nematode worm of the family Strongylide and are often in the gastrointestinal tract of grazing animals. Servitor hosts a number of these species of strongyles, with some studies showing over 50. Uh, strongyles have what are known as superfamilies. I am not going to... <laughs> looking at this, there's, um, there's uh, multiple subfamilies of these that are listed here. And I would embarrass myself, and it would probably take us um, another 15 minutes trying to get me to pronounce those. So I'm going to skip over those. But just know that there are um, there are quite a few different kinds, and there's one specific kind. It starts with an O. Um, that is something of importance. So the life cycle of the strongyles is similar to other parasites. In spring and summer, strongyles shed unembryonated eggs in host feces to, excuse me, the eggs hatch a larva within 12 to 17 hours, uh, and these are identified as L1. So uh, I'm going to mention L1, L2, L3. There's actually a, a picture and a graph on this um, particular article that shows uh, the life cycle traveling through the body, and there's a picture of a deer there with with those uh, notations, so get a chance to take a look at that. After one to two days, the L1 larva molt and the second stage larva um, into the second stage larva in one to two days. Um, in nine to 14 days, infected third stage larva appear. This is L3. These are very resistant to environmental conditions. They are not destroyed easily by weather. Uh, at this point, the L3 migrate from the feces to the surrounding vegetation and then are ingested by the host. After ingestion, the strong gel develops into the adult L4 in the specific sites. 
the abomasum, small or large intestine, and then burrow into the mucosal lining or gastric glands, either reverting to an arrested state or developing into adults. Adult strongyls inhabit the the abomasal or intestinal lumen and are subsequently deposited into the feces, which will begin the life cycle yet again. Clinical signs of infection are diarrhea, fecal edema or swelling, anemia, and death. Oftentimes, the depressed appetite leads to a number of pathogenic events, such as decreased weight, decreased body mass, decreased skeletal growth, decreased lactation, decreased fertility. Um, Diagnosis and prevention. Diagnosis of worms can be challenging and depends on the type of worm suspected. Fecal samples are often often helpful in determining if there is a parasitic infection prevention with the use of sound worming. Vaccination and nutritional protocols are the best option to keep your herd healthy and sound pasture management and ensuring you're not overcrowding your animals also helps with parasites and disease. So that um, that wraps up the article. So I'm just going to kind of freewheel some of my, my additional my additional thoughts here on this. Um, there's there's quite a few ways to to actually go about you know managing these these um, these parasites, and you know one of the most important, if not the most important thing, generally, uh, but when it comes to uh, parasites and, and worming, is uh, your your density of animals on your you know, specific amount of acreage. So it's it's always, always, always better to have less animals. Uh, what we found over the years is that somewhere between four and a six adults per acre is the ideal place to be. Um, some people can run a little more. Some have to be on the lower side. But overall, if you're in that four to six adult uh, per acre range, you usually have very minimal kind of interjections. You have a good feed program, um, you know, you operate a vaccine program, and there's really not a lot of treatments that need done. Now, every place is a little different, um, and we'll we'll tie this into we'll tie this into the to the article we just looked at. But every every like I said, every place is different, and that load on the ground. Um, is going to be, it's got so many factors. So, you know, is it a, is it a climate thing? Um, you know, what are the stressors? Do do you have a close herd? Are you constantly bringing animals in? Do you, do you operate that vaccine program? Um, do you have a good nutritional program? And I think that we may get, we may get kind of lost in these types of things, so just because you're buying, let's say, nutrition, just because you're buying a quality feed doesn't necessarily mean that you have, excuse me, just because you're buying an expensive feed doesn't necessarily mean that it's quality. Um, you're under the impression that it is. You're hoping that it is. But, you know, I, I've chatted with some guys um, 
you know, and they're they're they have custom rations, and there's again nothing wrong with custom rations, but they have these custom rations that they've they've worked on with a, a you know quote unquote nutritionist, and you look at some of the ratios on on a few of the things, and you're just like, this is not like less is more, you know, things you need things in balance, so to me, you know, a, a really well balanced feed that is not necessarily quote unquote too hot, not doesn't have way, way too much carbohydrates, has moderate amounts of fat and has, you know, adequate fiber levels is, is usually pretty good. Um, I'll give you an example. Some, some, uh, some guy I knew, he, he had been, uh, you know, just doing his thing, feeding his deer, he had tons of nice bucks and they were doing their, their annual, you know, feed sampling or biannual, whatever it was. This was at like the end of summer. So it was like August. They usually did one every August. And um, he gets the results back and he's like, yeah, you see that buck out there? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, what do you think scores? And I was like, oh, I don't know. The 380s. He's like, yeah, I think he'll be over 400. This is a, this is a four-year-old deer. But this was like, you know, 2010, four, 400-inch deer were not like, a popular thing like they are now and uh he goes that deer is grown on 12 percent protein i was like huh you know because you know as the as the industry evolves like people become i think a little bit more open um you know about their feed programs and what they're feeding and um but back then you know 10 10 years ago it was it was kind of like hush hush everybody had their secrets or at least some people did whatever um but yeah, 12% protein. And it was amazing to me because like, I didn't think that was possible. You know, and you go to someone else's place and they got, they got, you know, feed, they're feeding, you know, 22% protein. Well, any of the people that have done, you know, even a small bit of research on feed or the, uh, you know, the feed guys that are listening, you know, they know that, you know, every point percentage of protein that you go up is somewhere between 10 and 20 bucks depending on your where you're getting your your protein but it's about you know 10 to 20 bucks a ton so you know the difference between those two feeds was you know over a hundred dollars (laughs) well that's significant when you have you know a couple hundred animals and you're feeding them all year so um I, i guess i got on a ramp up back to back to having good quality nutrition that's that's important so if you keep and and we we started the thread talking about parasites uh and and then i i slid into population densities so population density and control allows you to i don't want to use the word skimp but i think for the for the sake of this, I'll say skimp on other things. So what do I mean? I can give you a specific example here. So I have I have approximately uh, 10 adult does on about four acres right now. And they have not been dewormed for 18 months. 
They look fine to me. Does that mean that they don't have parasites? No. Well, somebody might ask, well, how, how do you know you shouldn't, you shouldn't do wormum? That's the key. If you keep your density down, you'll almost never find parasites. Almost. Sometimes they're there. But what we do is we do a pooled fecal sample. So what is a pooled fecal sample? So when I say pooled, I mean P-O-O-L-E-D, pooled, pooled fecal sample. Um, so that four acres is four pens. So I take fresh, take a little bit of fresh fecal from each one of the pen. And then I just put it together in a bag. And I take that and I get that, that test done. Now, the tests are incredibly cheap, but I'm, I'm stingy when it comes to our management. You know, I, I spend money where I think it, it matters most, and I'm to the point now where with the, the densities that I run, I don't think that I have a lot of parasites. So I'm not going to spend money on, um, you know, dewormers and fecal tests and, and the like. Now, if I saw an animal that I thought was underperforming or potentially I was having issues with, I would do an individual test on that. And I think that's, I think that's perfectly fine. But generally speaking, if your, if your animal load on your ground is relatively minimal and controlled and you do some pasture management, I think you're just fine not worming but you know, once a year. And, you know, like I said, I, I, was, <laughs> I was 18 months on these girls. So they're going to get worm this fall. Um, you know, they'll, they'll get some injectable wormer, and that's a, a good way to, to manage that. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that people don't worm their deer. But have a reason. Spend the 25 bucks, get a fecal test done. Um, you know, if you want to do, do one in each pen, you got 10 pens, it costs you 250 bucks well if you find out that there's parasites in one of those what is the cost to treat that one pen versus treating the 10 i bet you it's more than 250 bucks so you have a cost saving and you're not necessarily feeding a uh, product to animal or a product to animals that don't need it what's what's the point in that so something to consider i think there's um i think there's some good ways to look at this um, hopefully this show was was helpful. Um, you know, I, I I didn't necessarily enjoy uh, the reading of the scientific names, which we had some fun with during the during the show. But I, I think it's I think it's worthwhile to to talk about these different uh, types of of things. You know, one being being parasites and kind of some of my thoughts on it. But you know, also share with you what we do. Um, kind of behind the scenes or for the service solutions members um, that I think has some some really good value so um, as always if you have questions or comments on the show you can shoot me an email it's jnewton at servantsolutions.com and uh, with that we'll wrap up stay tuned for another episode of North American Beer Talk <laughs>